This is a Media Lab podcast. Uh, Kyle, why are you trying to pry your eyes open with those toothpicks? You know, you fed me those, uh, you say not poison cakes from last week, and I am just terrified that you're going to try and pounce on me and, 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 and kill me in my sleep. Is there music on? Is this, is this Ludwig Van? Don't play coy. You know I'm listening to Rock Me Amadeus. On a rinky-dink spaceship headed back to Earth, Kyle and Dave are stuck on board with an evil machine. This giant robot is forcing them to watch films it picks. If they don't obey, then it'll be the end of the world. Again. This is mostly Kyle's fault, but he's not going to face an apocalypse alone, especially not on this ship that seems to be held together with tape and imagination. This is Kyle and Dave versus The Machine. Welcome to Kyle and Dave versus The Machine. My name is Kyle. I'm still Dave. And I'm The Machine. This is a podcast where a sentient machine was forcing us to watch movies in order to prevent it from initiating the apocalypse. And then another apocalypse happened. Somehow it's used its powers to transport us across time and space. So now we're on our way back to Earth. The machine still threatens our lives if we don't review the films it asks us to. Although we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. And today we're going to be watching the movie A Clockwork Orange. There was me. That is Alex. And my three droogs, that is Pete, Georgie, and Dim. And we sat in the Corova milk bar, trying to make up our Razudox, what to do with the evening. The Corova milk bar sold Milk Plus, which is what we were drinking. This would sharpen you up and make you ready for a bit of the old ultraviolence. Little Dave, of course, we need to give a big thank you to our patrons, Green Girl, YYC, and uh, It's a Conspiracy Podcast. Woo-hoo. But uh, talk about conspiracies. There's there maybe a conspiracy about how this film is like in the uh, pantheon of great films. So I thought we might want to invite someone that can maybe speak to that a little bit more. And maybe this is pretty undue pressure on them. But I'm going to do a big phone call here to get our hologram all set up. Uh, Jen, Jen, is that you? Hey, yeah, I'm here. Welcome to 1971. I know it's amazing. She was here I, to welcome that's us. That's right. It's I know. Great. I mean, look at my Farrah Fawcett hair. I feel like I should be in a Head and Shoulders commercial. So feathery, so feathery. Um, the uh, and the bell bottoms are a nice touch too. Thank you, uh, Jen. I know we're we're supposed to be friends, but uh, do do you have some time to maybe sit down and watch a Clockwork Orange with us? Just say no. Just say no. Uh, I I sure do. Um, you oh. know I, I Kyle. I I do think like I thought we were friends. Didn't isn't this also <laughs> the year that Willy Wonka came out? Why did I get it? Sure why is. Why did I get this one? Oh, very similar movies. When you really when think, you really you know. think about it. Well, I guess let's start with you here, Jen. What is your history then with I guess maybe Stanley Kubrick in general, but this movie specifically. Listen, so I love film. It's one of the reasons why I take my role as president of the Kyle and Dave versus the Machine podcast (laughs) fan club very seriously. That's right. But I 
I was also raised in a home with a parent who was really, really concerned about the presentation of women in cinema. And, you know, that extended, you know, not just into, um, you know, film noir and, and mainstream film, but also into animated film. Uh, you know, my my father was big on uh, Cinderella ending with her becoming a very responsible accountant and making sure the entire kingdom was financially compliant. You know, women had to be represented in film. They had to have jobs and a point of view, and they had to not just exist uh, for the for the purposes of of men or to perpetuate a stereotype. So this film was not ever on my radar. And it mm-hmm. sort of was always something that, you know, you saw at the video store. And and to be fair, you know, the cover art doesn't say, hey, come on, pick it up. Let's let's watch it. You always saw right. it on film lists, but it really didn't live in my world until I was asked by you to re- to to review this film. And uh, like, listen, I know movies. I've seen a lot of film. I also know a lot about the political and cultural contexts that films live within. And I think the Clockwork Orange invites itself to a really uh, robust discussion about what it is and where it fits. And I do think that that conversation should take place with people like you and me and Dave, um, who are, you know, I think the consummate everyday film viewer. Wait, are you saying this will be the first time? You've watched this? Correct. Oh my God, Kyle, you <laughs> bastard. <laughs> Why? What? What is, what is it? Well, I mean, we haven't watched it yet, Dave, so oh, I don't know what gonna, you might, what would be referring to. This is going to be a wild ride. Ugh. This is weird. For once, I'm not the most evil presence on the podcast. Uh, Dave, what is your history with A Clockwork Orange? Uh, I, I watched this for the first time several years ago. Um, I didn't like it. That's all I remember. I think uh, I remember it's gross. And uh, there are parts of it that have become, uh, what do you call it, meme lore? I mean, I don't know. Uh, visually, I don't know, repeated. People mm-hmm. use a lot of the imagery in this film, particularly the eyeballs. Uh, I think yeah. that's even in your favorite show, The Simpsons. But other than that, I don't have a, a pleasant feeling. So I'm wishing all of us the best in the next two hours. Uh, I suspect we'll need uh, we'll need some counseling after. I mean, honestly, I think this says more about me than I care to admit, which is one. Uh, this is, pr- I think, the third time I'm going to see this movie, although like the first after I'm going to get 18 years. I'm, I, I don't know. It's been a long time since I saw this movie the last time. It was a, a university movie for me. I, I watched it a couple of times there. I owned the VHS of this movie, uh, actually, for wow. a while. This is also uh, maybe a, a, a broader critique of Kubrick. And I should point out, too, that I am a soy boy beta cuck. So I've never, I guess, really been, like, super into, like, the ultra-violence genre of films. Like, this has never been my thing. I mean, you love horror. Yeah. Yes, I do. But that's different. Okay. Because I don't like slasher horror. That because that's a, a whole other subgenre. I oh, like I kind of like psychological, like there's being some kind of point to it rather than some guy running around and stabbing people. Um, the outlier here is actually the film The Raid, which but that's kind of like ballet as like fighting film, so that's like down my alley. Um, regardless, <laughs> a Clockwork Orange, like we kind of mentioned here, is this very part of our culture in a way that I think we just take for granted that 
other films reference it so often. It's usually on the top 100 list of most film lists that come out, like the best movies of all time. And it never was that for me. It was never like this like vaunted piece of art that like was untouchable for me. It was like I came into it being like, there's some interesting imagery here. I feel like I know what the uh, what Stanley Kubrick is trying to say with this movie, whether he's successful at it or not is another question. But I feel like I know what he's trying to to say with this film. And that was about it. Like, it's not really a movie that stays with me because I love it all that much. So we're going to probably get some nasty letters <laughs> over this because this movie is really, really, really enjoyed. Um, and I feel like this is setting, us, setting ourselves up for a conversation that's going to basically be like super negative about this movie. So I'll be I'll be the person who takes most of the brunt on this podcast. I feel like my role here is to try and give some of the positives about it and uh, I guess go from there. But uh, enough beating around the bush. Let, let's pause uh, right now. I'm going to go thank some sponsors. And then when we return, we'll be delving into uh, with specifics about A Clockwork Orange. Oh my, oh my gosh, Dave, you're here with me during the ad read. This is new and exciting. I'm trying to take an active part. You know, you've kept mm-hmm. me in the shadows so long, locked in that weird uh, closet in the back of this weird room. So uh, let me let me help. Let yeah, me help you. Pal. At least you're not handcuffed to my table anymore. As as listeners from season one remember, it was quite a few weeks before you escaped. <laughs> and it, and some people would say it's because I forgot that plot thread, but they would be completely wrong. The the fiction is too deep and it's too rich for us to right. make a mistake like that. Yeah. Here's what we need to start off with. Uh, Kyle and Dave vs. the Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. This week, we are sponsored by PodPower. With PodPower, our sponsors are making it possible for us to amplify the voices of Albertans and Alberta podcasters. This episode, Edmonton Community Foundation is helping us give a PodPower shout-out to... Is This For Real? Is This For Real is a podcast about various facets of black life in Edmonton. In the first season of the show, Breaking the Blue Wall, Umar Salafu and Hanan Muhammad explore anti-black racism and policing and tell stories about policing in schools, accountability in Alberta's policing system, and the impacts of police violence on black Edmontonians. You can listen to the podcast and read more about each episode at isthisforreal.ca. You can also support the work of these podcasters and future seasons on Patreon. And over to you. This episode, should I say also? Ah, yeah. You, you run them together, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, this episode of, I almost said my viewfinder. Jesus Christ. This episode of Kyle and Dave versus the Machine is brought to you by the Calgary Foundation, proudly supporting community needs for 65 years. Everyone wants to feel a sense of belonging. Now, more than ever, we are united by a desire to take action and help others by creating a community built on kindness and compassion. From small creative projects to larger citizen-led initiatives, the, the Calgary Foundation provides grassroots grants. There's uh, two plurals. That's hard to say. Stupid. Just keep <laughs> yeah, all of this let's in Let's throw here. the copywriter <laughs> under the bus. That is what the most important thing is about this ad. <laughs> The Calgary Foundation provides grassroots grants to encourage and support people who want to create and strengthen bonds between neighbors and communities. If you've got an idea to improve, enhance, or revitalize your community or neighborhood, visit calgaryfoundation.org to find out more about the... Oh, sorry. 
If you've got an idea to improve, enhance, or revitalize your community or neighborhood, visit calgaryfoundation.org to find out more about the foundation's grant opportunities and visit. Sorry, Kyle, give me a sec. Am I crazy or? This is a very long run on sentence. If you've got an idea to improve, enhance, or revitalize your community or neighborhood, visit calgaryfoundation.org to find out more about the foundation's grant opportunities and visit the Calgary Foundation's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube channel. Dave, what's amazing, I know some people will think that we edit that together, but you did that all in one go. Like that was one <laughs> shot that you were able to read that ad copy and that was impressive. It's all about breath control. It's all about the strength of my diaphragm. It's, it's just, that's the key. That's great. All right, let's get back to the machine. Okay, hopefully we've had a time to decompress a little bit. We've seen this movie. Uh, Jen, I, we really do need to start with you, you being the guest here today. You can, you can have spoilers, that's fine. I just want to know like your initial thoughts on watching A Clockwork Orange for the first time here in 2021. Well, you really do hate me, clearly learned <laughs> that. Um, you know, just to put into perspective, my feathered hair is now flat because uh, I've had to lay down after watching this film. Um, okay, so put it into context, right? The women's movement on fire at the time that this film would have been adapted from the book and uh, given a screenplay treatment by Kubrick and brought to cinema. What are we seeing from women in the early 70s? We're seeing them be part of the nexus of, you know, question government to question questions. Women rising up uh, through, you know, the EERA, a, a genuine sense of, of of women finding their voice in a in a Vietnam-esque time uh, where they wanted their voices to be heard. So we have this incredible juxtaposition of, um, you know, women being more provocative in film, uh, women having a voice in film, women being the, the heroes and the anti-heroes of film. And then we have far to somewhere else, a film that views women through the lens of complete uh, disposability uh, as a commodity. Uh, as a woman, as an empowered woman, this is a difficult film to watch. You know, women have gone through the the nexus, as have men too, uh, to a certain extent, gone through this nexus of how do they find their value and their purpose and their identity in society. And this Kubrick film, which I think is pretty faithful to the book adaptation, says they have none. They have none. And the overt sexual nature of this film is is striking. And I think it begs the question, um, what should the film experience be? And I know we're going to talk about it more, but you know, I I watched this film as a as a woman first, and it was it was deeply uncomfortable, um, which some have argued is what a film experience should be, but it was tough to watch. So this is unfair, I know, to ask you, being like the lone female on the podcast, but do you feel that this, or, or is it the problem with just the source material, but do you feel there is a way to make this movie, but with a feminist bent? Um, you know, the source material matters for sure, because in, in the yes. book, there's a, a genuine, you know, sense from Burgess that it, you need to see women through this lens in order to be able to really go on Alex's journey. Um, from good to evil and to be able to ask the pointed questions about what is the role of government uh, and what is the role of our interaction with society without the noise of of the female experience within it. So I do think that some of this is is genuinely by design. 
So no, I I don't believe that you could put a a, a a female perspective into this without diluting what the film is supposed to be. That being said, you know, it's it's a complicated approach that Kubrick takes in this film. While I have not seen A Clockwork Orange before this time, I've seen other Kubrick films many times. And what I find striking about this that I think, you know, all these people that want to laud the, the film miss is that he's so overt in demonstrating the sexuality. But when he needs to be overt in explaining other themes, he chooses not to be. So he's deliberately making choices in the film to exaggerate the sexual nature of women. And it's often done to the point where, you know, I, I can't speak for, for someone in 1971. I certainly did try to find a woman who would have seen this film in the theater to get their perspective. I, I have one. Oh, I can great. Great. Here in a moment. Yeah. But I think for me watching it in 2021, it's it's just so painfully in your face for reasons that I think lack the full justification. So I guess we just end the podcast there, right? Dave, this is your, I think, second time seeing this movie. What are your immediate thoughts of A Clockwork Orange? Yeah, gross. I, um, I you know, to, to Jen's point, it's not just the objectifica- uh, objectification of women, it's the violence. And I know that the central premise of this is supposed to, I don't know, live a couple days or a year in the life of a sociopath or a psychopath. But even from the opening of this movie, there's a deep sense of nausea because uh, they worship violence. It's also weird because they use their uh, slang language. So Mm -hmm. it kind of forced me to kind of sit in it and pay more attention, which is so gross because I actually just don't want to know. Uh, I mean, like, like Eyes Wide Shut that we reviewed last year, when I finish this movie, it stays in your brain, you know, and you start making that question of like, is there a point? Am I supposed to question the role of government? There, like I started thinking about conversion camps and fucking all of these weird things we do in society that we think that we can enforce a norm. And then I thought, why? Like this movie's so gross. And as I don't know if we want to talk about this yeah, before the before we do the background, but as Jen may or may not know, Stanley Kubrick pulled this movie from theaters and banned it yes. from being seen until his death because there were copycat crimes. So this is not a film that inspired intellectual discussion. Right. This is a, a film that uh, at least you know, quote unquote, to the masses, uh, enabled people to worship violence as well. And it's gross. It's uh, it's a it's a brutal brutal movie. It was rated X. And I, I was going to ask if we should be comparing this to Sweetback because, uh, mm. you know, other than Kubrick being a master cinematographer and an epic maker, this movie and that movie have very, very strange parallels, uh, maybe opposing themes, but they're very strange parallels in the provocateur sense. Uh, but they're- Yeah, they're definitely both going for the provocative nature. Yeah, Jen? Sorry, therein lies the quintessential challenge because- you know, if if you want the true cinematography or cinemagraphic experience of Stanley Kubrick, you have the shining Full Metal Jacket and Eyes Wide Shut readily available to you. And I especially give a shout out to Full Metal Jacket just for the sheer way in which the camera was used to to tell a story and and to to leverage point of view. But doesn't Kubrick then, in fact, shortchange the book? Because the book asks the central question of first year philosophy professors across the world, which is, is man good and society makes him bad? Or is man bad and society makes him good? 
And that is a quintessential yeah. question that we asked certainly in the 70s, certainly now today. And I think we will continue to ask in the future because it's all wrapped into then what becomes the role of the government and where do we have an, an intersection of individual rights and the common good? These are all themes that are worth exploring in the cinemagraphic experience. Kubrick's intentional decision to make it so deeply sexual and violent and uncomfortable, I think ultimately strips away all of that intellectual leadership that that film could have had. Yeah. I, and I guess where I come down, there, there's a, so many different roads I can take this conversation into. But I mean, like, part of me bristles a little bit at, you know, there's copycat crimes based on people who have seen this movie and now are going out and, and doing those acts. And that's awful. And that should be chastised to the full extent. But I mean, there's also other, uh, we, we see this even today, like you have the, the people who love Taylor Swift as like a completely different example, who become unhinged if anyone makes anything disparaging against Taylor Swift. So is that a problem with Taylor Swift or is that a problem with the fans of Taylor Swift? Like, I well, don't know, like, I, isn't that, is, if, if this is a piece of art that is meant to be provocative, it did its job, I guess, a little bit even though the fans of it are being awful. But be provocative where? Because you had the opportunity to be provocative, to make a very important point that's central to why the film has its name. I mean, can something organic be made mechanical, right? A Clockwork Orange. Mm -hmm. That to me is the provocative dialogue of film and certainly what was needed at that at that point in time where people were looking at their relationship between the institutions that were starting to shape their society that's provocative cinema. The choice to watch, I mean, you know, what are we, rape at minute five, rape at minute 11, rape at minute 45. I mean, and, and we're not talking about like implied rape. We're talking about, you know, full frontal desperation of, of, of women. And then somehow we're going to make a political statement. I, I just don't understand how those things are congruent. I'm not convinced they're trying to make a political statement. I mean, the story that American publishers and producers took away the so-called missing 21st chapter mm -hmm. where the, I mean, we'll talk a little bit, I, I don't we know will, if we should, yeah. about the writer and you know his experiences and how this book even comes about. But he originally wrote this sort of ending where Alexander uh, apparently sees the error of his ways. Now, yeah. whether that's a cop, I, who knows? We can discuss that. But American publishers decided that that wasn't good. And I think that's a reflection of the same thing we're talking about here, that American culture in general has a cavity. <laughs> There's a problem. They, they worship violence. They worship conflict. Uh, and that's a broad generalization to use the word they. But uh, we see the effects of that in every aspect. So we brought up Taylor Swift. Is she responsible to the fans? They're both. I mean, celebrity worship culture in general, people that buy into that. There's uh, like both the celebrity and their fans. There's something, uh, there's just something in general that feels, maybe it's realism. Like I, I want to be an idealist and think that people can be nice to each other. But as Kyle knows more than anybody, I don't believe that's true. And we see like the three of us watch this movie and we're actually engaging in a cultural discussion. A bunch of other people watch this movie and they decide they're going to go and, and beat up homeless people and rape people. So I, I don't know. Maybe this is the problem is the core philosophical nature of human evil that, uh, you know, we're gross. I can definitely agree that you're gross. Let me tell you about my thoughts, I guess, on this film now having seen it after a bunch of time. 
And I think it's because of like where we sit ourselves here in 2021 about what I personally find shocking and what I don't really find shocking all that much because I don't really see the violence, the physical violence. I'm not talking about the rape yet. The physical violence, I don't see to be all that shocking. There's so many more other films I've seen that like do gruesome, gross, disgusting, like physical violence to people. The rapes are still like, I find hard to watch. Like those ones, like this is not, I don't enjoy watching that in films. I never have enjoyed watching that type of brutality. Uh, unless there is somehow being wrapped up into like a greater philosophical point. And I don't really, I don't think this film uh, sticks the landing in that regard. I guess where I'm coming from, and I think I'm alone in this, is that I do not feel that we're supposed to be rooting for Alex in this story. And I know that he's our main character. I know that he's the protagonist and that engenders us to naturally uh, uh, like the person that we were first shown to a film. But I don't, I just, I just don't see it. I don't see where... And maybe that's just me. It's like, I, I don't see him as a good person. I don't see him. I don't want him to succeed in that. And that that's an interesting a take to do where it's basically we're following the villain of the piece around. And then, you know, he still gets away with it at the end. So that's I think that's a, another provocative nature that this film does. And I feel like this gets wrapped up into some of those other films, like the ending of The Graduate, where some people think that that's a happy ending. I'm trying to think of other films where people kind of like miss the point, quote unquote, or like the super fans are like, you like this, but that's not really what this film is about. Am I am I wrong in that? Or do you think that we are supposed to like be loving what Alex is doing in this movie? Well, I think name, no, we're not supposed to. name any Kubrick film where we're cheering for a character. Right, right. right. I, you know, you know where this movie gets twisted? I, I agree. I mean, I don't think we're supposed to like the character. I, I think where this thing really gets twisted up is the government is portrayed as completely inept. So you mm -hmm. get caught between like just hating everybody. And then you, there's this sickness because you've got this uh, conniving politician, you've got this bumbling uh, prison guard, you've got mm -hmm. uh, the police officers that turn out to be part of his gang. It's just, there is no moral core anywhere. So then you get lost in this dialogue of pure evil, evil begetting more evil, torture to stop evil, torture doesn't work. So he goes back to being evil. Like what the fuck? Like it is such a downer, man. Like there's there's nothing. There's no redeeming value yeah. in the entire narrative. I think that the 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 byline to the film like this is welcome to a world where everything's broken and there's no one stakeholder who can fix it or who wants to. Please enjoy this next two and a half hours of your life. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I want to introduce a new segment to the show here, which is um, I was not consulted. I, I was not consulted, so this is not my fault. Neither was I. Basically, critics' choice. I don't know what, what we're going to call it here yet, but I did. I really wanted to search out for like of the time what people were saying. Now, I will say that I, I, the the film itself, I would say, got mixed to positive reviews at the time that it was released. Um, so the first I'm going to do, I'm going to do uh, Roger Ebert first, who did not like this movie. Although the star rating is interesting, he gave it two stars out of a possible four. Uh, what he says is this. What in hell is Kubrick up to here? Does he really want us to identify with the antisocial tilt of Alex's psychopathic little life? In a world where society is criminal, of course, a good man must live outside the law. But that isn't what Kubrick is saying. He actually seems to be implying something simpler and more frightening. That in a world where society is criminal, the citizen might as well be a criminal too. 
I don't know, but they've really hyped a Clockwork Orange for more than it's worth. And a lot of people will go, uh, if only out of curiosity, too bad. In addition to the things that I've mentioned above, things I really got mad about, uh, Clockwork Orange commits another perhaps even more unforgivable artistic sin. It is just plain talky and boring. You know there's something wrong with a movie when the last third feels like the last half, which I love that last line. I think it's a really uh, funny takedown. But the other person I went to was Pauline Kael. Pauline Kael, of course, is like a, a huge uh, influential voice in film criticism. Um, she also hated this movie uh, quite a bit. Kubrick's martinet control is obvious in the terrible performances he gets from everybody but McDowell and in the in inexorable pacing. The film has a distinctive style of estrangement, gloating close-ups, bright, hard-edged, third-degree lighting, and abnormally loud voices. It's a style, all right. The movie doesn't look like other movies or sound like them. But it's a leering, portentous style. After the balletic brawling of the teenage gangs with bodies flying as in a western saloon fight, and after the gangbang of a writer's wife in an orgy and speeded up motion, you're primed for more action, but you're left stranded in the prison sections trying to find some humor and tired schoolboy jokes about a Hitlerian guard. The movie retains a little of the slangy nadsat, that, uh, but none of the fast rhythms of Burgess's prose, and so the dialect uh, so the dialect seems much more arched than it does in the book. Many of the dialogue sequences go on and on into a stupor of inactivity. Kubrick seems infatuated with the hypnotic possibilities of static setups. At times, you feel as if you're trapped in front of the frames of a comic strip for a numbing 10 minutes per frame. In the book, the doctor who has devised the conditioning treatment explains why the horror images used in it are set to music. It's a useful emotional heightener. But the whole damn movie is heightened this way. Yes, the music is effective, but the effect is self-important. So <laughs> she goes off uh, much, much longer into those types of things. And um, it's sadistic nature and that sort of thing. Uh, but th those are what critics were saying at the time, that this is this supposedly provocative thing. But A, they were really focusing on how boring it is, um, uh, as well as some of like the morally bankrupt uh, images and stuff that are in this movie, too. So this is not just something from the year 2021. Those were things that were being mentioned at the time. Well, there's two things there that that warrant some discussion, I think. The first is this issue of sound. I really struggled with the sound of this film. Um, mm. I am one of the things I look for in a good film is not just the sound editing, but the sound architecture does the sound move. And it's so incongruent. Like I found like the and I know that there was some new technology in this film. They were really experiencing with Dolby digital sound. This would have been the evolution of that. But I found like the sound was so piercing in compared to the to the dialogue. I mean, th there just was an interplay between the two. And I I started to wonder, you know, after I was riding the volume button for a good hour, I wonder how intentional this is. Um, yeah, because th the theme that really envelops itself is this uncomfortableness. Right. The the scenes are meant to make us feel uncomfortable. The sound is meant to make us feel uncomfortable i i believe or it's a happy accident again i'm i'm trying not to be one of those cinephiles that's like oh everything has a meaning this is this is right, cinema right. porn the real true meaning when really it was just crap sound but i think part of the uncomfortableness actually came in the length because you know i'm like the consummate editor and kyle and dave you both are too when we listen to this podcast we know you're always like that scene could have been gone this should have been shorter this should have moved to here why was this needed i dave's always a big fan of cut out the last third of everything right so yeah 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 so i wonder if some of those scenes 
we're, we're left that long to make us sit in the uncomfortableness. The scene with the parents when he comes home from prison is one great example mm-hmm. of him being deeply, deeply like it's uncomfortable. He doesn't belong there. There's someone else there. The family has created a unit without him. They don't, you know, they don't want to participate or, or be part of the dialogue. You, we're meant to sit in how uncomfortable that is. The scene with the with the inspector sitting on the bed with him while he's in a pair of underwear is so deeply uncomfortable. You just feel like this Epstein-esque moment is just going to envelop itself. And you're just like, I don't want to watch this. I just want the scene to be over. The purpose of the scene is to say behavior, you're going to get caught that, you know, that could be implied and implicit. Instead, it just goes on and on. But you realize that that could be an intentional film mechanism to, Mm -hmm. to make you feel uncomfortable because the subject matter is uncomfortable. The themes are uncomfortable. And I only would say that because I've seen eyes wide shut. And that film is a masterclass in everything being too long because they want you to live in the uncomfortableness of it. That is, that is the, the legacy of that film. Uh, Dave, anything else you want to add in before we jump into some backstory here? I guess I'll just write off of everything you guys are saying um, in by comparing it to Sweetback. And I think that here we have a so-called, I mean, he is a master filmmaker wrapping something that is perverse and intentionally violent to the audience in uh, a package. And Sweetback was something where he, you know, Melvin didn't know how to make a package yet. And that film is visually unwatchable, but it was a treatise on human civil rights and the actual problems that, uh, you know, I guess lower and, uh, you know, women, people of color, marginalized Americans were experiencing. And so we have this interesting uh, dichotomy where uh, one was hard to watch because it's, uh, you know, kind of ugly. And this one is hard to watch because it's ugly on the inside. I mean, you make valid points on, you know, whether the music's done properly and the static scenes, but um, it is visually prettier than Sweetback. It's just at its core, it has nothing, it has nothing to say other than uh, promoting perversion and violence. Uh, The scene with the counselor, I also got this feeling that they were going to just get to this point where he was going to, I mean, he grabbed them by the crotch. I think the intention was to go that way and maybe somebody pulled it back. Which again, it's actually just to make that point, that is added into the movie. That's not actually in the book, right. that scene. It, tell, it tells us so much more about Stanley Kubrick. It, and, and then we- Absolutely. Sorry to interrupt. I'm sorry because you're saying exactly <laughs> w- what I believe, which is that there were intentional choices to make this more sexual than it needed to be. And I think you. Well, there's penises in every shot. Every, it's uh, excuse me, penis, vaginas, just vaginas cod, everywhere. Cod, cod pieces, yeah, yeah. Well, okay, let's. I want to delve even more into this, uh, but let's do some backstory here. So, A Clockwork Orange was released on December nineteenth, nineteen seventy one, in New York City. It is currently rated eight point three on IMDb, seventy seven on Metacritic, and on Rotten Tomatoes from seventy one critics, it's at eighty six percent, and from two hundred and fifty thousand plus users, it's at ninety three percent. It is available on DVD and Blu-ray. It can be rented or purchased from iTunes, from Google, or it can be streamed on our favorite uh, streaming platform, Dave, Stars. How do we the not sur- have a sponsorship yet? I know. It's the return bullshit. of Stars, everyone. Not yet. <laughs> uh, its budget was about $2.2 million. Uh, because this is 1971, it's kind of hard to find like exact uh, numbers as far as opening and et-, et cetera. But it did go on to make $26 million in North America. That's $171 million with inflation. 
This was the seventh highest grossing film in the United States in 1971. It was the eighth highest grossing movie worldwide. Uh, Its plot description is, in the future, a sadistic gang leader is imprisoned and volunteers for a conduct aversion experiment, but it doesn't go as planned. Wow. (laughs) It's it's a a lighthearted comedy. (laughs) Things just did not go as planned. That's right. (laughs) It stars Malcolm McDowell as Alex, Warren Clark as Dim, Sheila Rayner as Mum, and Patrick Magee as Mr. Alexander. Dave, anything you want to say about those actors? Just quickly, in terms of fan culture, did you know that Malcolm McDowell's life was threatened because he killed Kirk in a movie? I mean, this, this is so fucked up, right? Who gives a shit? Which, which Star, Star Trek. Trek did he do that in? Uh, he did uh, Generations, the one with uh, Patrick oh, okay. Stewart. And yeah, so he was the yeah, bad yeah, guy in that. Okay. And he uh, apparently he kills Kirk and apparently he, he had to go, almost go in hiding because uh, Trekkies were trying to uh, attack him. So uh, stupid. Uh, and yeah. then, uh, I mean, I, I know this is very reductive, but I feel that Malcolm McDowell has basically used a Clockwork Orange for the rest of his career to be like, yeah, I'm just a like, it's a shorthand. It's like, oh, it's Malcolm McDowell. He's evil. Like, we just don't even need any more than seeing he's got, Malcolm McDowell he's got in a his movie. Face. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just being childish, but he does. He does have his face. Um, speaking to the weirdness of this time and era. So Adrian Corey, Adrian, Adrian Corey. So she plays the uh, wife and uh, mm-hmm. rape, rape victim in the red suit. She was the third woman to try to play that role because the first two actresses that were cast just wouldn't do it. It was too gross. And so she said when she got on, she had no problems uh, portraying the role and, and being naked in front of uh, the camera. But because it's Kubrick, apparently that scene took days to shoot yeah. and she had to take was- one of the shots of her being uh, raped and struck 39 takes to the point where Malcolm McDowell had to stop the shoot. He said, I'm tired of hitting this woman. Like that's a, f- that's just, it's such a fucked up thing to think about. This had to be performed for Stanley Kubrick live until he was satisfied that the rape was portrayed correctly. That's mm-hmm. Uh, that's weird. I did it. I did a deep dive on that because I, I, when you see a scene that is that difficult, you have to mm-hmm. understand like what is the what is the historical nature of that scene and has this actor spoken out about it? And from what I was able to gather, it was five full days of shooting, and I'm trying to think of how many red jumpsuits that is. Right, five full yeah. days of shooting, and then at that intervention point, then the scene was entirely retooled, so you knew that. It, it carried on past that point. And we know this about Kubrick's style, right? That it's, it's you know, Nicole Kidman talked about it quite a bit. You've, you've certainly discussed it. The amount of days and time it takes him to just get it feeling right. What does this reveal about this director that that occurred? So, like, sorry to cut you well, off, Dave, uh, but I, I didn't. No, but I, I, I also find that like, there, there is, well, yes, there's, a level of perfection that, okay, yes, you, we, we talk about other directors or writers like we're perfectionists, right? We need things to be just so. But then there's like obsessive perfectionists that are putting their actors and their crews through, I would say, like literal hell, a five-day shoot to film whatever that is, a two-minute long scene or a three-minute long scene. A two-minute scene is, of rape. Right. Is, is, is ridiculous. Like that is not... That's not okay. Like, I don't understand but do you look uh, at the, like how that even goes through it. Do you look at the end product of that scene and think that's perfection? Because aside from, aside right. from the, the actual grotesque act that is taking place, lazy cutaways, 
um, misdirection. If you watch that, the hands of the supporting actor who's holding her her arms, you know, there's there's repositioning. The end product yeah. remains messy. The apologists always talk about how, particularly I read some of the things with Clockwork Orange, how this is all intentional and this is part of his uh, genius, but it's it's a, it's apologetic. It's it's like when I make you two record this podcast over multiple days for very little payoff. It's people reading into, trying to express that they enjoyed it without having to acknowledge that they enjoyed it by giving it to Stanley Kubrick or to wh whomever's directing it. This is, I mean, this, I know this is a little unfair too, but this is why I can't stand horror and slasher genres. Like this idea that, oh, it's just a movie and I'm allowed to enjoy it. It's like, why, why is it entertaining to watch people brutalized on a screen? Uh, why is that something you want to spend two hours doing? But right. that's and, and, and a bit I of an say, like, I, I know I invoke him maybe even too much. Like he's not the be all and end all of film criticism. But one of the things that I really respected about Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel was they consistently were like that. It's like, this is perverse. Why are we getting so many slasher films? All it is is subjugation of women, seeing them topless and having them bloody consistently. <laughs> Every single time there's a movie like that, they rated it poorly. And I think you need those people, uh, not that we're at that level, to really point that out. Like, I don't get where the joy is in this. Or where we see the the artistry behind this. If we want to see something rugged and gross, fine. We also don't need to shoot that for five days straight. Just a quick note on shooting it five days straight. So I found this stat. Maybe you guys have seen it, but this film uh, consumed four hundred fifty-two thousand right. nine hundred sixty feet of film. So I found a calculator. That's eighty-three hours and fifty-two minutes of shooting for a two-hour movie. Mm -hmm. I mean, this guy's just insane. There's something. Clear. I mean, we know this from Eyes Wide Shut, and I'm sure similar stories will be in every film he shot. There's something uh, broken in his brain that he, uh, whether it's even just about this violence, but he, there's something fundamentally psychologically wrong with him. And we can get into a debate about whether that's what an artist does. <laughs> Artists are different than human beings, but he's, he's kind of gross. So this was written by Stanley Kubrick. Based on the book, A Clockwork Orange by Anthony Burgess, directed by Stanley Kubrick. Uh, okay, so I guess we should start with Anthony Burgess. So he was born on February 25th, 1917. He says he was indifferent to music until he heard a flute solo composed by Debussy on the home radio. And he called it, and this is a direct quote, sinuous, exotic, erotic. Uh, so music became his first love, and he wanted to go to school to become a composer. But his application was turned down to join the music program, so he instead turned to English literature. Because he was the right age, he joined the military upon graduation. He was pretty unpopular. He was, in fact, in many mischief-making incidents, is how they phrase it. So basically of him, like, I forget, like, knocking the cap off of his instructors and, like, waxing the hallway so people would fall down. Um, Would you say, Kyle, that he was like an Alexander? Well, I don't think he was into the brutal rapes, but there is maybe a reason why he wanted to write about that, because there was some awful situations involving his wife and some American soldiers uh, where they actually lost a baby because of what they did to her. So it's no wonder why I think rape becomes a huge point in the Cockroach Orange, the book, uh, of why that would be like the ultimate Seed. piece of violence against right. a woman. Uh, so his creative output was spent between being a composer, although his music never really found popularity. 
He was also very interested in linguistics. So much like J.R. Tolkien, he created unique languages in his fiction. That's true about A Clockwork Orange, in which he created an Anglo-Russian slang language that the teenagers speak called NADSAT. He also created a prehistoric language for the movie Quest for Fire in 1982. Uh, A Clockwork Orange would really be the thing that would cement his popularity. He'd published a few novels in the late 1950s. A Clockwork Orange, the book, was published in 1962. Described as a dystopian, satirical black comedy, it was met with immediate backlash because of its content. In the book, it's split up into three parts, each with seven chapters. The big thing that I personally think that really needs to be highlighted is that the character of Alex in the book is mm. 15 years old. Yep. Right? Which I think adds another level of, like, yes, immaturity, like, teenage rebellion, you know, fighting against the state. Perversion. Uh, a perversion. Um, I, I kind of want to come back to that because... I think it does change it when you have a base again, almost 30 year old in the role versus it being a 15 year old. It very much changes the dynamic, but it does follow basically the same plot as the movie. So, you know, as leader of the gang uh, makes one of his members mad, he goes to prison, uh, volunteers to be put into like this rehabilitation program. I think in the book, he's not, vo- he doesn't volunteer. He's, that's uh, correct. He's vol- asked. Voluntold he's because voluntold, he kills, yeah. Uh, yeah, kills another prisoner. Yeah. So like he's that. told to go into this one. They use classical music. He's a big classical music fan. These classical music as an underscoring to this desensitization program. Uh, so he becomes nauseous. Now, when he thinks about, Uh, violence or if he hears classical music he becomes very nauseous gets released goes back home there's a lodger there so he can't stay at his home anymore comes out wanders the streets that's when his two old droogs his gang members are now police officers take him out into the country beat him up leave him for dead he crawls to the nearest cabin which is where the original gang rape happened so he accidentally lets slip that he was the person in- involved in that. So the guy puts him upstairs, blasts this classical music. Alex jumps out the window, almost commits suicide. Finds himself in the hospital where a government uh, employee comes in and offers Alex a cushy job if he sides with the government and doesn't come out saying that they mistakenly released him too early. So even though with tests, they find that the doctors at the hospital have undone his conditioning as photographers snap his pictures, Alex daydreams of rape and smugly admits that he's cured all right. Now, that is also where the movie ends. Dave, you mentioned the fact that there is this 21st chapter that most Americans would not have read when they, that book was published in 1962 here. In the book, yes, there's one more chapter. And in that last chapter, Alex is preparing for another night of crime with a new gang when he happens upon the third member of his old group. That member has reformed, is married, has a kid. Alex finds himself having less and less pleasure in violence and promises himself to give up crime and to become a productive member of society, even though he worries that his children could be worse than he was. I do have to admit that does feel pretty pat as far as like an ending goes to be like, oh, you know what? I was wrong this whole time. And this immediately changed. That last chapter was not in the original copy published in North America, and it would not be until 1986. American publishers were adamant that readers would deem that happy-ish to be complete. Or sorry, they would deem that happy-ish ending to be completely unrealistic to the book. That's what the publisher said. So when Kubrick adapts this novel, he has no idea that there was a missing chapter. And when informed of this, allegedly, allegedly, I yeah, we probably should really emphasize that allegedly because he was in uh, the UK a lot. And there's an anecdote. I mean, I'll underscore this with: I have not read this book, but I've read about it. 
And there is an anecdote that when questioned about it, Kubrick kind of mentions that he's never heard of the 21st chapter, but also talks about how it wouldn't have fit the film. So, yeah, uh, I I mean, he, it's Kubrick. Yeah. Yeah. He, he always dismissively called it an extra chapter inconsistent with the rest of the book. Uh, Burgess considers the American version to be badly flawed, although eventually he'd go even further and describe A Clockwork Orange as a book that I knocked off for money in three weeks. It became known as the raw material for a film which seemed to glorify sex and violence. The film made it easy for readers of the book to misunderstand what it was about, and the misunderstanding will pursue me until I die. I should not have written the book because of this danger of misinterpretation, and the same may be said of Lawrence and later and Lady Chatterley's lover. So he was pretty like distancing himself from that book uh, later on in his life. Again, I think we have to talk about the responsibility of any filmmaker who adapts a novel of this kind, mm-hmm. or maybe any novel. You know, we specifically see in the book that when the gang breaks into the the home of the the husband and the wife and and in advance of of the gang rape to to the to the wife, the older gentleman is writing a manuscript. Yes. And in the book, it's called a clockwork orange, right? Alex picks exactly. Alex picks up the manuscript and reads aloud the copy. An attempt to impose upon man, a creature of growth and capable of sweetness, laws and conditions appropriate to a mechanical creation. Against this, I raise my sword pen. That gives the entire sort of thematic climax of what this film is intending to be about, which is, can you take a man who is inherently organically bad and make him mechanically good? Right. A clockwork orange. Yeah, and I, and I to, to really underscore that is... I think without that context, boy, does the name of this movie make no sense. Like, really, like, what does no it kidding. mean? Like, with just looking at the movie, I don't know if there's enough there to be like, so why is it called what it's called? Yeah. And the cover art also, you're like looking at this triangle, like yeah. what, what, I don't get it. But I think that that is where several film adaptations, especially of true stories, really break down. I'm appreciating this is not a true story, but it really breaks down where there's an obvious path to inform the audience viewer that you're taking them on a more intellectual journey. And instead you forfeit that for for grotesque violence. And when you see the source author then say, this film is not what I wrote, and this film then has been further exaggerated to have themes that I don't participate in. I think it's I think it's disrespectful to the cinematic integrity of films that do attempt to do that. And I think if you want a more reticent example, you can look at um, uh, the movie with Leonardo DiCaprio he did in 2011 called J. Edgar yeah. about J. Edgar Hoover. One of my all time heroes. The story of J. Edgar Hoover as the FBI director is an incredibly important and compelling story. But they told it in such a stupid way through flash, flashbacks and cutting forward and cinemagraphic tricks that the whole meaning is lost. And it becomes this film that you just step back and go, OK, well, that was totally that was totally unnecessary. Mm-hmm. And I think it becomes easy in another point in time to have done the same with A Clockwork Orange. Uh, the, the analogy I wanted to bring up, uh, actually, uh, listening to that, I don't know if either of you are familiar with the movie Rebecca or the novel Rebecca. Uh, yes. So I, I'm taking this because I've never read the novel Rebecca. I have seen the movie, the first movie by Hitchcock, Rebecca. And a lot of critics will say, like, yes, this is this is a great adaptation of this book because it doesn't treat this as um, like this love story. Like that's a, a kind of a secondary thing. 
Whereas the remake that came on Netflix or an army hammer this past summer, Rebecca was like, this is a love story and it's going to be a love story. And we're going to make this a love story. And everyone's like, what are you talking about? Like, this is not what this book is about whatsoever. You've completely missed the point of what this is. Does, does he try to eat her at the end? Yeah, he eats her actually at the end. It's, um, it t- turns out it was a prequel, the silence of the lambs. I think that's the crux of this. When a, a filmmaker comes to a work that they're adapting and kind of completely misunderstands what it is they're even adapting. Or overinflates it. Right. Well, I mean, at the core of this, and this is true, I think, for any human discourse, there's arts the same way. There's an intent by a creator, there's how it makes a form, and then there's how it's interpreted by a viewer. And so that last part is more a reflection of the viewer than it is of the artist's intent. So when you look at just the synopsis of this book and you read a little bit about uh, Anthony Burgess's life, both as a bit of a hellraiser and then the violence that happened to his wife, mm-hmm. um, there is an implied sense that this book is supposed to be an anti-violence book and something that is supposed to uh, sort of, they call it a satire. I mean, I don't know if anybody even understands what that word means anymore, but it's supposed to uh, inflate violence and evil so that it can challenge uh, people, the readers, uh, to face their own violence and evil. But when I look at this film, I think like the copycat killers, Kubrick only picks up on the violence of the plot. I mean, it's clear he's missed the morality underneath it. And so when he then interprets it, because he wrote it as usual, and puts it out onto his medium, we only get how, like the parts that he actually read. You know, he misses all of these little underscoring points that we're bringing up. And so he doesn't display them. And that gets interpreted again by another, uh, whether it's a minority of the audience, but uh, another sick, perverse group of people who then take that and further it. You see this in philosophy and politics. You know, ask anybody about what Nietzsche was writing about. Everybody will say something different because he was insane. He had syphilis, he had a brain tumor. Every paragraph uh, contradicted itself. And that was actually kind of his point, was that he was trying to push back against rationalism and this formalism, but that's not what people talk about. People are like, oh, God is dead. It's like, there are, there are things that a person means to suggest whenever they create, and then there's things that other people pick up on. And when you get someone like Stanley Kubrick, who has cultural weight, whether it's deserved or not, um, that gets magnified. And we get something like this, where we watch it. Ironically, we're having a cultural debate about it and we're expressing these views about human evil and, and the nature of art. But uh, it's not because I don't think it's his intent. I think that's an mm-hmm. apologetic uh, reimagining by critics in the 2000s. And this is why I hate critics, like modern critics. They're, they're gross, right, man. All right. They're gross. They only want gross <laughs> maybe things. You should buy, maybe you should buy, find better critics, Dave. <laughs> But you know, Dave, you bring you bring up a totally compelling thought here, um, and you've you've kind of wrapped around it a couple of times. I think it warrants some discussion. That I think that Kubrick got it wrong, and you think that Kubrick got it wrong. But maybe that's because we view society as being inherently good, and you know, we don't see necessarily the same elements of harm. Maybe we're wrong, and Kubrick is right. the The counterbalance to that is that people went to see this film, right? And we have seen time and time again this almost schadenfreude-ness of film where people want to look at things that people or maybe the mainstream wouldn't think. I mean, these are totally trivial examples, but look at Fifty Shades of Grey. 
I mean, people couldn't get that book enough and couldn't get those movies made fast enough because we wanted to see this sexual dominance in film and a woman finding her way through that. A more colloquial example from television would be Bridgerton. Mm. I mean, I think like Netflix is actually sending out emails being like, hey, you know, we got other stuff, right? And like, there's been a, a real nurture to to sort of look at these things that we as a good society don't want to look at. I do think that some of those 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 heavy slasher films also provide that almost proverbial uh, pungent release of, you know, we can't participate in this in society, ergo. I mean, how many purge movies are there? Right. Yeah. Right. They just keep making those yeah. films um, and, 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 you know, and television spinoffs because it's this idea of something so salacious we can never do in society, but there's an appetite for that exploration through film. So there's certainly the you and I, you know, I have um, let me clutch my pearls and say, you know, this is completely graphic and unacceptable. And for me as a film viewer, it is, but it, it found its audience. Mm -hmm. And it continues to find it. Well, I, I think what you're really hitting on here that I hadn't really thought of, but I think it's crystallized it is that what I said kind of near the beginning about like, I don't really find like the violence all that shocking, but I find the sexual violence pretty shocking still in, in this movie. And I think it's still like in the seventies, as we saw, it was like this like huge explosion here at the very beginning. I'm like, what can we get away with? Like, just what can we show? What can we do? And that's really been tightened up here over you know, in the next decades because films need to get a specific rating so they can get wide release so that more people can come and see them so they can make money. So we can still see violence. We can still see blood and guts and gore because we know we can get an R rating through that. But really any tiptoe into like sexuality or naked bodies and stuff like that is like, poof, nope, let's stop that right now. We cannot put that on film. And, and, and I'm wondering if that's that's part of the appeal to this and other types of films where it is that bit of, as Dave's favorite word is, titillation of of seeing something that is covered up that we don't get to talk about and why I think that online and the internet specifically has had this explosion of people being able to finally express their kinks, their uh, sexual proclivities, what they find attractive that film has never, ever supported. There's a British quote. I can't remember what it is. Uh, British people are prim on the outside, but they're no, sorry, uh, that they're, they can be ugly on the outside, but they're conservative on the inside and Americans try to act conservatively, but they're all perverse on the inside or something like that. Um, I, I don't know. I'm both an idealist and a cynic. Well, are you I trying want to say to... that they're, they're conservative in the streets, but liberal in the sheets, Dave? Is that what you're what? trying to say? Uh, <laughs> I'm both an idealist and a cynic. I mean, I wish that uh, people were inherently good, but I know that they're not. And I think that any post-war generation has to face this, particularly in the Second World War because of the concentration camps, et cetera, et cetera. We see the birth of yeah, existentialism and, and this free libertarian thinking because we have to face that. We have to face that we are capable of not just evil and cruelty, but like the very things that we, what that will destroy society, which is namely, given the right situation, I will even murder my family members. You know, it's, it's disgusting. But if we saw anything, particularly in any war, and I think this, I haven't researched this, but I'm sure that any school of thought that immediately follows a brutal wide-scale conflict will be violent in nature because you have to face these things. Dissent is necessary in a democratic conversation. However, I don't know. I just, I hate when these things are amplified. And this is why social yeah. media scares the shit out of me, is that at the very least, and, and we talked a little bit about this in Nicholas and Alexander episode, when you have this elitist er aristocracy, er aristocracy 
that has uh, control over intellectual dialogue, um, you allegedly have educated people arguing with each other. But when you put that to the masses and we go into the court of public opinion, which is what movies are, then you don't get a grounding voice. You don't get somebody who's like, well, maybe this was the intent. You just you just latch on to something. So, Fifty Shades of Grey, I think, is it a fucking abomination, but it it echoed in the culture of America. So, that's great. How many voices stood up and said, you realize that this is literally just online porn and that it's reflecting something about you rather than like eye candy? Nobody wants to have that discussion, right? You, you can't go to whomever's buying these fucking garbage books and say, you realize this is telling you something about yourself. They don't want to hear that shit. They want to believe that they're in this fictional world and it's okay because it's, you know somebody else wrote it. Uh, fuck off. You bought it. So, uh, you own that now. But you know, maybe I'm just an asshole. So I, what I'm what I'm hearing is that I probably should not have bought that box set for your birthday. <laughs> I was just gonna say the same thing. So I need to do some strategic gifting for yeah. Dave. Uh, I'll be back. You know, I think we still hear it today, which is that, um, you, you know, I, we've t- we, we're, we're circling and circling and circling around like is man good and society makes him bad is man bad and society makes him good which i really do believe is the central theme of this film we're still adjudicating it here today i mean even the jewish faith is based on the story of abraham and isaac like at to what point will you make sacrifices for good or bad and 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 how you negotiate the trade-offs i was even watching an episode like it's just in my ecosystem i was watching an old episode of superstore where they have an episode called amnesty day and they say like listen we all know you do stuff that you shouldn't be doing that's perverse and gross in this store and we're giving you one day to come clean and the store manager you know believes in the goodness of people and says no one will come forward and the assistant manager played by a wonderful canadian actress um, says, no, it, people are weird, but the constructs of society make them behave and give you the illusion that we're a high functioning store. And lo and behold, everybody comes forward with these incredibly gross tales that I'm sure are steeped in some reality mm-hmm. around retail sales. But I, it, it is a conversation that has continued. It's it's just these application of these these wild layers that have been applied on it by Kubrick's choices. And and really, the, the buck does stop with Kubrick because it's not one of those rare occasions where you can say that he was the director, but not the screenwriter. Mm-hmm. Like this is an adaptation from him, from the book, moved directly into the cinematic experience. He's responsible for it all. Shot meticulously, intentionally, structurally by one person, mm-hmm. one auteur, right, Kyle? So he has to auteur, wear that mantle. Yeah. Auteur. Yeah. Just so it doesn't get uh, sidelined too much, just to finish off this last little piece of backstory. So the critical response to the book was also mixed to slightly positive. Uh, but fun fact, apparently the original manuscript is kept at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario, mm-hmm. which they bought in 1971. Yeah. So your alma mater, uh, Dave, uh, bought oh, the I manuscript of this yeah. book. Uh, and this now means that this podcast constitutes CanCon, which is a joke that only Canadian viewers will understand um i don't even get it you're not alone it's just kyle in 1965 this story was adapted by andy warhol in a movie which i will say loosely movie uh called vinyl which i did watch this week by the way because it's for free on youtube you can go and watch it because it is an hour of your life that is also will never come back the rights of the movie initially were sold for 500 dollars, and it was originally going to be made by a different filmmaker and star mick jagger of all people 
But eventually, Stanley Kubrick secured the rights he made this while trying to make his fabled Napoleon movie, which never was made. His wife gave him the book and he loved it, uh, which got the ball rolling with this adaptation. The initially it received an X rating, like you said, Dave, uh, before Kubrick recut it and replaced about 30 seconds so it could go down to an R rating. In some countries, it wasn't allowed to be released um, or was banned in certain parts of countries. One of those places, by the way, Alberta. Alberta banned this movie when it originally came out. Can't trust cowboys. That's right. <laughs> and it was nominated, though, for four Oscars. Best Picture, Best Director, Best Screenplay, all for Stanley Kubrick, as well as Best Editing for Bill Butler. It did not win any. So it was nominated for four. So that means that, yes, Nicholas and Alexandra has more Oscars than A Clockwork Orange. For more talk about Stanley Kubrick, I'd recommend listening to our Eyes Wide Shut episode. Um, all I will say, again, in the concept of his filmmaking legacy, this was coming off Dr. Strangelove, 2001 A Space Odyssey, this film. I will, I will defend Dr. Strangelove way more vociferously than this movie, because <laughs> I love that movie a lot. But uh, yes, this is coming off of those other two films. Can I just make a quick Kubrick point? Yeah. You know, he's made all these movies that we would consider s seminal, but when I think about it, have I enjoyed any of them? Like, I have personally, I, you but know, I have. Even though when I watched Dr. Strangelove, I actually didn't really enjoy the whole thing. I know this is going to offend you, but you know, Peter Sellers is great, and I was, but I was, I got confused midway. Full Metal Jacket, the first Dave, half Dave, is great. Stop. You get confused. You get confused over every single movie we watch. It's like you're 20 minutes in, like I have no idea what's going on. I am <laughs> old, but I, I don't know. I just feel like um, there's, there's something where artism. I don't know what the right word is. Well, uh, I, I do think this, uh, this gets into like art and artists and all that type of thing. My personal feeling is that not every single piece of art needs to be quote unquote enjoyed for it to be good. That is not a, a me trying to elevate this movie in particular, but I think of a movie like uh, Schindler's List. Do I enjoy watching Schindler's List? No, I don't. It's uh, it's a hard watch, and I'm a puddle at the end of it because I've been crying so much. But I still think it's a great work of art. But, you but know let me I mean? just put something in there. Is you finish that movie, you're crying, you have empathy, you've had an education right. of of one of one story. You leave that, you will recommend that people watch that at least once because it tells. It tells a similar idea, like what is human cruelty? What what does it mean to have a redemptive personality? What can we do in the face of sheer evil? And something like Kubrick, who every movie is about perversion, and there are no redeeming characters. There's no there's no saving grace in any of them, and it reflects a little bit about his psychosis. I think it reflects a lot on critics. You know, if you look at what cr movie critic, professional movie critics hail as great films. I think it reflects more on that industry, except for us, because we're awesome. But <laughs> right. it, there's something frightening about putting all of these kind of things on a pedestal. And you know, to Jen's early point, maybe that makes me a bit of a naive rube, where I, I don't necessarily want to have a so-called Disney ending. People don't need to be happy at the end of a film. But no. I would like a film that is going to make me unhappy to be seated in something that is intellectually warranted for me to be upset about at the end. Yeah, there has to be a payoff. Something. There has to be payoff for my pain. A balance, yeah. right? I, I think a lot about how this film is the quintessential date test, right? <laughs> like you meet a man or a woman and you sit down with them and you're, you're looking at them and you're like, yeah, son, you're flirty. And you get batting your big eyelashes and you say, what's your favorite movie? And they say A Clockwork Orange and you're like, check. <laughs> I'll pick up the bill. I, I will say, because I don't think I've been offering much of a defense for this movie at all through this recording. Um, I will say what the, the, the things that, that I do respond to. 
Uh, and I, I, I've said uh, on this podcast before, I know that I get swayed a lot by just like production design on movies, things like this think are beautiful to look at. And I, I love this, the weird 70s design that this entire movie has, like the weird chairs are sitting in, like the bright colors, the wide angle lenses that it's Kubrick is using for most of these shots like that. The, the technical stuff in this movie I really, really do like. like. I think there is a reason too why people were so drawn to this because it does feel so different than any movie that we've seen so far in 1971. It just feels different. I will also agree that I think Malcolm McDowell, as much as I don't like him as a character, does give a great performance. Um, even though I think that everyone else in this movie doesn't, it's it, 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 there's these weird acting choices that are probably Kubrick directed choices, but this feel weird and off. I'm like, I don't. Are you a bad actor? Or are you or were you just directed poorly? And as much as I do also agree with like the sound being really weird, um, I do like the soundtrack of this movie, even though it's all just like uh, classical composers, except for that like weird like Moog <laughs> synthesizer bit yeah. that they that they use. But but I think there is yes, there's a reason why this is so like influential and why people are parody it, reference it, utilize it to this day. I guess where I'm driving at here though. Why do you think it still retains this uh, ability to be like best film, one of the best films of all time, top 100 lists, uh, it, very well reviewed on all those Internet websites we were talking about? There has to be something that people to, in 2021 are still attracted to. They're inner demons. <laughs> no way. No way. You can say that it's inner perversion, and I'm sure there's an argument for that, but this is totally um, cinematic porn. Mm. Like it is totally for people who are like, like I, I, I maybe even call a little bit of bullshit on Kyle, whom I love, but it's a little bit like, like, look at the cinematography and look at, you know, look at the, you list all these things. But when moviegoers left the theater, yeah. that's not what they talked about. They were not like, like if like groups of young people coming out of the theater or, or couples who mistakenly took their partner on a date night for this, didn't get in the vehicle and go, well, I the camera angles were st something there's <laughs> they were something do you, yeah. do you remember that, the what the giant typewriter because the force perspective that's genius exactly <laughs> so i think like let's also be realistic that this allowed people to i think you know hit all of their check marks around the elitist nature of of filmmaking mm -hmm. right like oh look at the graphic cinematography look at the look at the use of dolby digital sound or dolby's sound editing you know look at the you know the revolution of you know forced perspectives and oh give me a break this is just something that you can tout out at a party to make you seem like you have the veneer of culture mm -hmm. like oh well i find uh you know clockwork orange i can look past the fact that there's 87 scenes with a vagina and find my home and the and, you know in the in the moral efficacy of please please let's be honest about film that this film came out it has a cultural purpose because this film could never be made today right the the liberal wokeness and and the forced audience segmentation that that makes up green lighting films would simply never allow a film like this to be made and i i would argue that eyes wide shut would never have been made without nicole kidman and tom cruise right yeah. if it was starred me and kyle that film would never, never have been, been made. made and me and kyle would never be the same and so i i think that that's i think it's an elitist piece mm. that has been evolutionized over time that it becomes a talking point that if you want to be taken seriously, you can find some reason why this film has some resonance. I'll, I think it's a video. Yeah. I, I'll make the one point, and this is not about this film, but just the nature of Descent. Uh, Kyle brought up, I think twice, at least for um, 
uh, Blair Witch, mm. that you put out something that's gross, but it becomes essentially culture forming. And so, the sev- if we've learned anything so far in the 70s is that every movie is like this. They're all trying intentionally to offend something because they were finally allowed to do that. And so, do we see, let's say, maybe the influence of Clockwork Orange in the slasher genre? Do we see uh, this opening up of people accepting perversion in things that, I mean, I, I'm being a bit of a prude, but I get upset a little bit that every television show has to have a five-minute full nude sex scene, even when it's out of context. It's a required part of uh, filmmaking and television in the modern era. So we can talk about how this movie would never be made today and certainly in the violent aspect, but you could also argue that when's the last time there was even a romantic comedy where you don't see a full breast or someone's butt or, you know, they're unnecessarily smushing it. Smushing I, I just, it. Yeah. What? I just, uh, I think there's a, there's a context where that's important to a film. And then there's uh, the perversive aspect where they're like, well, this is the only way people will watch it is if we have uh, really hot bodies. And this is the thing about Bridgerton. I, I couldn't even watch the first episode, not because the actors weren't great in their thing or the subversive nature of having black aristocrats. It's just the moment they started having sex, I was like, what, what is this show supposed to be about? You know, is this supposed to be like a period piece with some satire or is it a porn? Is it a softcore porn? And, it, and it's supposed to be both. And this is the thing about Clockwork Orange. It's, or the 70s and the, and the late 60s. This is, I think this is where this stuff comes from. It's that you loosen up that code, we allow ourselves to, you know, right. let some of the inner demons out and then it becomes culture forming from there. Regardless of the MPA. I, I will say that you also dislike Bridgerton because of your blood feud with Julie Andrews. It's a, it's a well-storied <laughs> feud. Um, yeah, listen, nobody thinks you're going to get it, Dave, on Bridgerton. Like for for men, maybe this is that weird moment where I speak for women everywhere. But it is nice to have a man say, I burn for you. And it isn't a conversation about antibiotics. Right. Um, so, but you did make an earlier point about culture forming, that films like this are culture forming. I would challenge the idea, is this culture forming or if, or is this a society's ability to overinflate different? Mm. I mean, okay. Are are those two actually different? I don't know. I mean, what I, now we have to get into this idea, like what do, what do we mean by culture? You know, is it something that is pre-existing or is it something that's constantly evolving in the present? So um, like right now we use the term cancel culture. Is that a reflection of who we always were? I mean, this is the central theme of this book. Is that... Is that something that we always were? Is that something we are uh, manifesting or enforcing around us? Is it something that we draw back? I don't know. I mean, I don't want to get into this cancel culture business, but there's an element where we have to push back at the egregious nature of existing biases and discrimination. And there's also a mob mentality where we're doing the ironically the exact same things by trying to destroy dissent. So, um, I think this is a movie that actually broaches that conversation poorly, violently, with a deep, perverse bias of Stanley Kubrick. So the film itself uh, should be criticized a little bit more severely. But the central idea that you take, yeah, you take this disgusting person, you screw open their eyes, you make them revulsed, you torture them into submission. This is why I kept thinking about conversion camps and this fucking idea that we can mm-hmm. torture people to be different, but you don't touch the essence of that person. Whether you can or not is a, is a bigger, broader debate. And that, that is personally what I am the most interested, which this film doesn't really spend all that much time no. with, is that, like, can you do that? Whether it is 
because of someone's violent nature, whether it's because, you know, you're talking about conversion therapy of people being gay. Is there things that are innate in us that like there's no conversion therapy out there that's really going to work? But is there stuff that could be worked in that way? Is Alex a completely lost cause or is he someone that can be rehabilitated? Do we want him to be rehabilitated? Those are questions I find fascinating, uh, which I don't think this movie is interested in exploring. See, this this is why I love this podcast. This is why I love this podcast is because we're talking about like, what is the inner innateness behind this film? Most podcasts on this topic would have just been like me asking the two of you like, hey, what images do you think about when you masturbate? I think it's really. I, I think did it's send really you different. my list, though. I did send you my list. <laughs> I'm still typing mine. I've got too many. <laughs> yeah, that email has been deleted. Yeah, yeah. That's its own podcast right. available to premium subscribers. That's right. It's on our Patreon. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's that's right. That's the Patreon. A weekly premium. list of what we got off to. But I, I I do think that that is a relevant discussion. I also think it's worthwhile to talk about a paper that was written in 2016 by Kathleen Walsh, who talked about that this film is also it's it's lost cause theme. And I think this is a, maybe another example of overinflating the central thesis of this movie. Is this a film about ultimately love? You have to remember that you have a character here who has no symmetrical relationships. And well, and his parents are like completely not involved in his life really either. So there's that kind of discussion you can get into as well. But every relationship is based on power, yes. right? So every, when relationships are based on power, and this is this is something I've I've studied at Harvard when we talk about um, adaptive leadership. When relationships are based in power which all of his are power against the police system, power against his friend group is all about a struggle for power, uh, power in the dynamic with his, with his parents, power in the dynamic with himself and, and how he views certainly women. When there lacks that symmetry, then power becomes the objective of all your human interactions. And that can be deeply destructive um, in, a, in a government process and in a human civic society. And, and I think is, is a, is a budding theme that we're going to be adjudicating in our civic society, probably, you know, in the not too distant future. Mm. I mean, speaking of Nietzsche and Karl Marx, <laughs> I mean, if you wanted to boil those two fellas down to a central theme, it, it would be exactly that is the human interactions that are defined by power, whether it be aristocracy at the time or now capital, uh, you know, uh, the power of money, earning and comparative uh, descriptions, uh, they're all become hollow. But, uh, uh, but without getting too far into that, I agree, with, I agree with that. I think that that is a discussion that needs to be had, that people are trying to have, but it gets twisted very quickly, uh, whether by mass media, propaganda, or just a lack of uh, reading. I don't read, so I really shouldn't com you know, comment any of this stuff. But there's one other uh, point when we talk about, uh, can we solve other people's problems? So, in my uh, addiction recovery, what I've come to learn about human nature is that you can only help someone who's willing to help themselves. And so when we get into discussions about, you know, the homeless epidemic, we, we talk about addiction, we talk about here about ultra, ultra violence, right? And this is the thing about the 21st chapter. Is it a cop-out? I don't know, because I haven't read the book. We, we take away the exaggeration of what violence is. So the murder, the rape, but we get this idea of a teenage kid that's fighting against, I don't know, himself, his poor family relationships, his relationships to society. To society. I think all of us have, I think, I, at least I'll speak for myself. When I was young and I was a teenager, I had a contemptuous relationship with power systems as well. 
uh, I didn't go out and try to murder a homeless person or attack women, but I did uh, do really dumb things. And as I get older and I get more immersed in the society around, and I have a genuine belief that I'm supposed to be a quote unquote contributing member of society, I also have this idea that, yeah, I've got a kid now, I've got a family, I've got better relationships that I actually try to work in and pour into instead of trying to take things out. So that power deck, uh, dynamic changes. Is that something we hope for for this Alexander character or is he meant to be an example of what happens when that person is not willing to? I don't know, right? But uh, we're straying a little bit because it's no longer about the movie. And maybe this is what we have to kind of review about all our movie reviews, which is do even bad movies that make us have this discussion have cultural value? And I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know how to answer that because I don't want to excuse and here, <laughs> And herein lies a huge frustration that I have is that this film has spurred incredibly important ideas and themes from the three of us. And I'm sure the people listening as well and other people who have reviewed this film and studied this film um, at a much superior level than the three of us have. Why can we not have that discussion without it coming at the cost or balance of such a poor display of violence to women. Hmm. Like, why does that also have to be part of that? I mean, it's, it's infuriating. Well, yeah. I, you know, the, the counter, I, just for argument's sake, if this movie didn't have that or had a character who throughout the narrative regrets it, do we even have this conversation? Do we have to be confronted by the visualization of pure evil to accept that it exists? You know, do I watch Schindler's List and I ha do I have an existential conversation about the nature of evil? Or do I watch it and it's tied up in a bow and I just have experienced? I don't know. I mean, I don't think there's a single answer, but um, the I, the concept but of Schindler's the List provocateur, right? I, I don't know. Right, absolutely. Schindler's List relies on a real evil, yeah, a real evil, a factual evil. When you have the choice of a manufactured evil and you consciously choose it to be violence against women. Man, that's frustrating. Yes. That's a frustrating cinematic choice. And when you see the level of detail to which he wanted to present, and I appreciate that there was a goal here to make us feel deeply uncomfortable, and that's a mechanism to do it. I just feel like at its place in time, there, there were other more intellectual choices you could have made. I mean, how many people have seen that film and just been like, yeah, it's as close as you can get to porn without having to rent porn? Mm. I mean, yeah. Like who missed it entirely? Yeah. You can make the argument it's it's farther than porn. Oh, absolutely. It's disgusting. We're done here. All right. So the, the machine has told us that we do need to wrap up here now. Um, <laughs> I do want to contend that I do think, I don't know if, if live action filmmaking is the best way to adapt this source material. Maybe there's somewhere else to do it because I, I do think that the fundamental aspect of a 15 year old committing these crimes is much different than Malcolm McDowell at 28 or 29 doing these crimes. And I, again, I think that point is also lost in the adaptation of this film, but let's ask our uh, most important questions. The questions we ask each and every episode, uh, does this hold up and is it still culturally relevant? Jen, what do you have to say? Well, I, you know, it's hard to answer that question without wanting to reshape the question as could this film be made in 2021 and what would be the reaction if you did, right? There would be pandemonium from every direction that I think would take away from any sort of point that you wanted to make. Does it hold up um, if you're willing to dive really deep and have an intellectual discussion like the three of us have had? Maybe. Is it this cultural touchstone? No. Uh, does the presentation of, of of women 
And, you know, I, I don't want to just focus on the rape scene. I also want to focus on the the milk bar yeah. and what that all represents, the yeah. disgustingness of that represents. Um, absolutely not. Absolutely intolerable. Yeah, I would be nervous if a young person said to me, well, I, I want to watch all these films on this list and I want to watch Citizen Kane and I want to watch all these films and I want to watch Clockwork Orange. I don't know. And it, I, <laughs> again, just just to underscore your point, because I, I, I think I understand where you're coming from, but just so it's not misinterpreted. Uh, you're not saying that you cannot show bad things happening to women. It is how it is actually portrayed on film. It's is it necessary? Right. Like Dave's made the case. You can't watch a rom-com now without full frontal nudity because there has to be this sexual encounter that leads us to some paradise. It's not necessary. And here I just can't make the argument that it is necessary. Dave, how about you? Culturally relevant still hold up? You know, I, I always end up, I, I don't know, it's ironic that I would want to portray myself as a sort of pseudo-socialist, but I am actually uh, the opposite. Because I feel like something like this, if you either uh, preempt or underscore, so if my son, when he's 15, says, you know, here's the AFI or Letterbox mm -hmm. Top 100, let's watch every single one of these. And then, you know, Sweetback comes up or uh, Clockwork Orange. And there's, it's not like these are the only two egregious films yeah. that have been made. Do I let him watch it? Do I have to preface it? Or is it best that I sit down with him after and p and pull it apart like we have here? I don't know, right? So, Well, you make him listen to the podcast to bump up our <laughs> listening stats. And then... That's right, yeah. Um, the other thing that I thought of, uh, which is w what we talked about with Mike during Sweetbag, is the idea of, you know, if you're going to be a provocateur, you have to own it and take a full responsibility of the of the piece that you made. Melvin Van Peebles essentially was never able to make another movie, whether by choice or by industry. But the problem with Kubrick is that he continued to make similar type of perverse films that are all lauded as great cinema. And so what you brought up, you know, it's just shot well. Is he meticulous? Is he, you know, is he a cinema cinephile? They get twisted. So does this movie allow us to have this conversation? Yes. Would I tell a random person to watch this? No. Will I be afraid when my son, who will for sure like movies, decides to watch it? I will be afraid. Does that mean he should not watch it? I don't know how to answer that question because you can't well, also yeah, shy away yeah. from it, right? Because I'm not a big fan of banning movies. Like you do hard. have to have this conversation right. afterwards. Of yeah. yeah. So I, just a quick question, just a follow up, Dave. Um, how would your answer change if your son were a daughter? Yeah, exactly. And that's, and this is the thing, you know, and I think about this all the time. I was convinced to be honest with you when my wife was pregnant that we were going to have a daughter. And I, I had these sort of uh, problematic uh, thought experiments when we were waiting uh, about whether I needed to change, you know, even in my day-to-day -day biases, because those are things that I've never confronted until we had a child I, or even, you know, getting sober and all that kind of stuff. So um, I agree with you. And I think that I see amongst peers and people of who are raising children um, that that is not as straightforward as we want to believe. <laughs> that it's not like if you have a daughter that you want them to be so-called liber uh, liberated or free thinking, that these cultural biases that people bring in strongly affect even young children as young as my preschool, four-year-olds. They had an idea of what a boy and a girl should wear. It's fucking crazy, you know? Uh, but that's just the world we live in. So, I don't know how to answer that question because I don't have a daughter. So I don't want to presume for all of our listeners or people out there that do have different situations. But I will say that when my son uh, gets to age and he wants to have these types of conversations, I would like to believe that I will be available to have said conversations and that it won't be one direction where I'm telling him he's wrong about everything. 
Um, yeah, but think of the think of the people that will view this film and have no person to steward them through I agree, the conversation. But I don't have control of those people. So the best thing yeah, that that's I true. Yeah. neither do I. Yeah, and this is the problem. I now we'll get into politics and power. But I, I so the best thing I've learned is I will take care of myself. Uh, I will never watch this movie unless somebody invites me on a podcast and forces me to. Drops it in my lap, uh, and I appear as a hologram in a weird. Uh, a deep and rich fiction. That idea sounds like it would make a great podcast. And when I watch it then, I'll be vehemently against it because uh, this movie made me sick. I felt quite ill. See, this is how I know how much I'm broken because <laughs> I, I, I didn't have that that visceral response at the end of it. Like I did feel like hollow at the end of it, but I did not myself feel like sick after having watched this. I feel split on this question because do I think it holds up Having watched it now here in 2021, I have to answer no. I don't think it does. But I have to be honest, too, and say, like, my initial feeling of, like, what I'm going to rate this movie has dropped since having this conversation here today, too. After doing the research, having this discussion, like, my initial, like, gut, like, this one, I think I'm going to rate it has, like, dropped. So, I don't know. Maybe I'm just easily swayable. Who knows? But, it like, I just... Approaching this movie, not in the concept of, well, like Kubrick knew what he was doing. And of course, it's about this. I think those are maybe parroting points from previous criticisms I've seen and really involving myself in like counter arguments has really opened my eyes, I think, a little bit more to be like, I think there's a different way to look at this than what the general consensus is. So do I think it holds up? No. Do I think there's cultural relevance? I actually do based on the conversation we've had. Let me read out this to you as well. Here's all the adaptations of this story. So we have... The book that comes out in 62, Andy Warhol's film comes out in 65. This movie comes out in 71. A manga series was created in 1983. A German play was made in 1988. A musical was made in 1990 with music by Bono and the Edge. So a way to make the, the, the source material even worse. Um, another play made for Chicago's Steppenwolf Theater in 1994. And this was adapted by Burgess himself. A different play adaptation in New York in 2002. Another play adaptation that involved a bunch of multimedia integration in Los Angeles in 2003. And finally, an adaptation that combined elements from the novel, the film, and Burgess's play that came out in 2007 in New Zealand. This is repeatedly made over and over and over again in different formats. So it seems like it's something that we keep returning to. Overinflating different. I'll just quickly point out too, no films after this film was created. Yeah. Well, so you want to so talk about iconic, how it could like be described? Hard, right? Yeah, if you want to make this discussion relevant, should it be in cinema? And you know, and then we get into the discussion of one-way dialogues and interpretations. You know, is a book different than a film? I think so. Yes. And should it have been a podcast? Well, this is <laughs> an audio book. And who would have read that audio book? <laughs> right. um, but the question <laughs> I have is, Julie you know, Andrews I, actually. Yes, <laughs> obviously, yeah, obviously. Uh, when you think about Burgess's statement that. You know, I wrote this for a couple hundred bucks. This was a financially motivated yeah. move. And like, I mean, you have to kind of even think about like, okay, they're going to sell the rights, sell them for nothing because it's worth nothing. And then it runds up in Kubrick's hands. Like at what point do you sit at home with like a stiff drink and think, well, I got to move, right? <laughs> yeah. I got to move. And then you continually see these adaptations of people either trying to, I think, sorry, I just think that's the overinflation of different. Yeah. I know I feel bad about this, uh, Jen, but you, um, uh, your rating doesn't matter. But if you were to give a, a rating to this movie, what would it be? 
Sorry, just to recap, um, as the only woman on this podcast reviewing a film yes. that does not put w- women in a light, you're asking for my Correct. <laughs> for my one statement that doesn't matter. Okay, yeah, just that's where we are. Um, sorry, what's the rating scale? One to ten. One to five. One to five. Technically, you can do like point five if you want to give like the lowest rating. Yeah, you know, I just um, using violence to 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 cover what could have been an important piece of dialogue that I think was at the heart of the book. Um, I give this film no rating. Dave, how about yourself? You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to, again, compare this to Sweetback in the sense that I gave Sweetback a one because it is almost impossible to watch as a movie. But the discussion that came out of it was fascinating, especially getting contextual information from Mike about its role in uh, Black America. Uh, We still gave it a one. This movie is constructed, arguably, in a much more... uh, beautiful way, but it lacks a moral core. So I will also give it a one. And I think that what I mean by that, even though we had a great discussion about it in the periphery, is that the movie itself doesn't uh, doesn't do justice to the themes. So, I, you know, I think Jen's right. I think that this is not a film that in itself makes us think uh, constructively. I think this is a film that makes us think about the book which then once we'd researched the book, we start thinking about yeah. what it could have been. Um, but if uh, we had- And that is a lot where I am coming from too, because I originally came out just as the movie without any other contacts with it. So I, I think it does change once you realize, oh, as an adaptation, I don't know how well this actually works. Yeah. Anyway, so that's that's where I'm at. I mean, when you texted me last night about looking into An- Anthony Burgess's true experiences, um, sadly, with with gang rape and the violence against his wife, there's a deep core where this could have been uh, a wider, maybe more developed theme, uh, uh, you know, treaties on human evil. Stanley Kubrick took that and only uh, expressed his own madness, in my opinion. And I don't I don't know if this is a movie that people need to watch anymore. Um mm. That's just me. Sorry, I I know it's not my turn anymore, and I know that my rating doesn't matter. I could rate it two Cineplex tokens and a Starburst, <laughs> but I think what I I caution, and I think that this has this has happened with other people, is how much does this film receive a rating on what it could have been? Right. Mm. Yeah. No, I, I agree with that. Um, I am definitely rating this much higher than anyone else on this podcast, so I apologize. But I, like I said, there are elements of this that I actually do, quote unquote, enjoy watching, even though as a whole, I don't think it really comes together all that often. To be brutally honest, I haven't really even thought about this movie all that much in the last 18 years. I think that might be the privilege of being male. Uh, part of that is uh, wrapped up into that. And part of it, it's just not a movie that speaks to me all that much. So I find this movie almost easily forgettable, even within other Kubrick films. I think that there's other ones that are much, much better at accomplishing what he is trying to do uh, versus this one. So that's why I am personally giving this a three. So I know much higher than both of the other people on this podcast. However, that does average out to two. So Dave, I guess it's up to you. Like, uh, we have to do two different lists here because this is on the letterbox top 250 as well as the movies we're talking about in 1971. So in 1971, first and foremost, do you think we put this like right above Sweetback? Do you think we should bop it above Nicholas and Alexandra or how do you feel we should place this? And, and to Jen's point, I mean, I, I don't know how to separate the idea of a film in and of itself, the film on its thematic value the film from its source. I mean, maybe that's the whole problem is that we're not supposed to separate those things. I think that the better conversation came out of Sweetback. 
but this is a film that is constructed with a higher budget and more intense. So I, I don't know, Kyle, how do you split the difference? I, I put it at the bottom just because I felt gross in a different way watching this. You know, I felt violated, frankly. It, it's, you, I felt like Malcolm McDowell with my eyes pried open by some fucking device. Did you, oh, did you know they scratched his cornea and he was Yeah, the open, temporarily... he almost went blind yeah. in, uh, during that scene, yeah. Um, the only reason I want to put it above Sweet Sweet Back is because at the very least, as, as heinous as some of the scenes are in this film, at least it's not child abuse that I'm seeing on screen, like actual sexual child abuse that's happening in front of me while I'm watching it. So that's the only reason I would maybe put it above right. it. Fucking 71, man. We're digging, we're digging a deep hole at this, with this year. What do you have next for us, Kyle? Well, oh one second. God. I'll tell you. I'll tell you. One second. So uh, entering our list uh, at the number five position... We've only talked about seven movies, so like, but entering our list at the number five position is A Clockwork Orange. Well, next week, Dave, I guess we should find out. Let me just uh, push this button over here. Oh, well, we were going from like bold colors, like avant-garde filmmaking, being provocative to a black and white, uh, very classically shot film that was trying very hard to harken back to classic Hollywood. We're going to be watching The Last Picture Show. Wait, what? I I don't care. I missed out on the. Okay. okay. All right. Thank you for having me. Thank you <laughs> you're, for you're welcome. You're, she, you're how welcome did she to... turn off the hologram by herself? <laughs> uh, no, Jen, before, before you flicker away, uh, maybe you can let people know where they can find your work online. Yeah. I mean, if you want to have a robust conversation about the role of government uh, in today's society, then you might want to check out my podcast. My podcast goes issue by issue looking at um, conservative politics and where it needs to go to reshape, to better represent the momentum of, of Canada. And uh, you can reach me on Spotify and Google Podcasts and certainly Apple Podcasts and everywhere you love your podcast to be found. Uh, you can reach me on Twitter at the Jen Sanford. That's Jen Double N. And I will be happy to field your criticisms of Kyle's review of A Clockwork Orange. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, Dave, um, my eyes have been open now for like 48 hours straight. I I need to go to bed. I just need to go to sleep. Oh, wait. I forgot. I'm supposed to put these eye drops in? I yeah, mean, that's right. You look yeah. terrible. Yeah. I do. Like this red irises and everything over the way. If you just want to drop those, uh, those eye drops there on, on me, that'd be great. Don't scratch my cornea, Dave. Don't scratch my cornea. It's like when I make you two record this podcast over multiple days for very little payoff.